1: of uh, social distancing and recording here from home in the midst of our efforts to avoid the coronavirus. And it appears that within all of our faith communities, there are those who are taking the need to protect life and health much more seriously, and others who are perhaps relying on God and um, blowing off, as it were, obligations. To avoid public meetings, including worship services. My guest today, Richard Fulton, my friend and colleague, serves as senior scholar for religious freedom at the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum. Richard, welcome back
0: to Freedom's Ring. It's glad to be back on Freedom's Ring.
1: And, you know, let me start on a positive note because certainly Jewish faith, Christian faith, and each in our own tradition emphasize. Protection for human life, and I think it's it's certainly central to Jewish ethics, is it not?
0: Absolutely. And you know, in the context of the further ongoing crisis we're all facing, uh, it didn't take very long after the implications of what was going on became clear that my local synagogue, modern Orthodox synagogue that I attend began taking measures first, you know, to try and restrict food service and such at services. And then when it became clear that that was not going to be enough to close down uh, in-person services, to close down the synagogue for the nation. And, uh, you know, as things now stand, we're not holding uh, the group services, which are traditionally an essential part of Jewish observance, but those are not taking place. We're not having a Torah reading which requires uh, from a Torah scroll, which requires an Orthodox congregation ten men to be present, or in other streams of Judaism, ten people to be present. Uh so these 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 really essential parts of our faith and of our worship are not taking place because the imperative protect life uh, was declared by our rabbi, and not only by our rabbi, but rabbis generally, to take precedence over the ability our ability to have all the kinds of worship services that, as I said, are such a core part of our practice.
1: And I think maybe the place to start here too, um, someone sent me an article about a New Hampshire court that very quickly rejected a challenge on First Amendment grounds to restrictions in that state of gatherings of 50 or more. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the challenge was based both on, you know, in terms of uh, political rallies as well as worship services. Um, from a religious liberty standpoint, can you give our listeners an overview of why the judge may have been right to throw out the challenge, at least in terms of uh, the religious freedom aspects?
0: Well, I, I think the judge clearly was right, uh, you know, under a under longstanding standard, which isn't always applicable these days, uh, even if you had a uh, a strong protection of religious liberty, uh, that protection still could be overridden by the government. That is, the government could require you to do things that were a violation of your religion or forbid you from doing things or required by a faith, provided there was what's called a compelling state interest that couldn't be met by more narrowly tailored means. And even if that's the standard this judge was applying, uh, nevertheless, this is clearly a situation where there's compelling state interest in protecting life. And it's not just the lives of those people that choose to attend the service, which where they may or may not be putting themselves in danger, but also the implications for the broader population when they where if they then, you know, catch the virus and go out into the larger community, the threat of this spreading this virus to other folks as well. Sure. So there's no more narrowly tailored means of protecting life that you could think come up with than just saying you just simply can't beat for these services. Uh, where there are groups of whatever, 10 or, or even fewer people that are, are gathering together. So I just want to say that even under the most protective standard of religious freedom, uh, the judge would clearly be correct in, in ruling as he or she did.
1: And we have seen reports. I've posted an article about uh, some folks who got sick and died as a result of catching the virus at a worship service. So, you know... This is a serious issue. When I, uh, After I posted that article, by the way, a little bit of gallows humor here, um, I decided that my headline should have been something like, come to church and meet your maker.
0: <laughs> that is gallows humor. Just to sharpen the point you made, there's a report that came out just in the last couple of days in the Times of Israel that uh, synagogue visits in Israel account for a quarter of locally transmitted coronavirus cases. And why is that the case? Oh. Because, because that's the place where people have continued. And, and again, these are outliers, uh, in Israel as well as here. But nevertheless, the, uh, there are places where folks continue to go to synagogue for these group worship services. And so as opposed to that, not taking place elsewhere in Israel. And so you, you have this really troubling statistic about the number of, uh, cases that have seemed to arise from having been, uh, participating in services at synagogue.
1: Well, and, and this kind of is a nice segue to, you know, we often talk on the show about the danger of too much religious influence in politics and how religion and politics, uh, can mix very badly at times. Um, and I gather from another article I saw, and I know I, you know, I sent it to you or you, or maybe you sent it to me about the, um, uh, is it the health minister in Israel who's, who's ultra orthodox and, and who is saying, you know, essentially publicly saying, well, the Messiah is going to come back before Passover and, and, uh, solve the problem for us.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it would be nice to think that, uh, that Messiah Mashiach is going to come, uh, that soon, but, uh, we're not, we're not supposed to rely on that. Uh, you know, let, let me just uh since we're talking religion, you know, there's, there's a famous, Story in the Bible of when uh, uh, when Jacob was preparing to meet his brother Esau, from whom he had been long estranged, and he did three things: he prayed, he prepared gifts to give to Esau, and he prepared for war. So, what what does that translate into? That means you're supposed to pray and rely on, on God, but you also have to and and also prepare for peace and to do things in a peaceful way. But you also have to prepare to protect yourself. And you know, we've heard her talk about this being you know, the nature of a war that's been imposed upon us in terms of the virus that threatens us. To deal with that, we have to be faithful people, but we also have to do what's reasonably necessary to protect ourselves and our communities and our families from the danger, great danger that this virus presents.
1: Certainly, I agree. Um, There was an exchange that I heard about where, you know, uh, pastors... Uh, objecting to the restrictions and insisting, look, we're going to have our church service anyway. God will protect us, mm-hmm. to which the reply comes, uh, yes, God will protect us through social distancing. That's the means that he sent us to be protected. Right. right. So back to the religious liberty issue here. Um, in Brooklyn, there was a widely circulated report that the authorities came and actually broke up a gathering there of ultra-Orthodox who were meeting, uh, you know, in uh, really, uh, despite the restrictions. Uh, I guess, what, what are the religious liberty implications of, of going beyond voluntary restrictions now and, and actually having authorities come and break up a religious gathering?
0: So two things. One is we have to be careful about stigmatization of any community, and that includes the ultra-Orthodox. And just as these folks were acting in defiance of law and common sense, there's plenty of folks and and organizations and institutions within the ultra-Orthodox community that are doing the right thing. And you know, stepping back from these kinds of activities, right? So, yes, um, I appreciate so, that,
1: and okay. within the Christian community, too. I, you know, right. I understand that Liberty University is going to open up and right. have the right. students come back, right? And so, so, so,
0: but I just, so just want to make that point. And a lot of folks that were acting badly initially, uh, now are seeing the damage that's being done to their communities, the higher rates of infection and such, and are taking necessary steps. And in fact, there's a, an important letter. Uh, some of the leading organizations in the country taking imposing very strict measures and directives for their communities as to be done. So I, so I want to make that point first. But, but second, I think at the end of the day, whatever steps would be taken to prevent gatherings for secular reasons, including people who foolishly go to beaches in Florida or what have you, uh, are going to need to be taken in these contexts as well. And has to be done with sensitivity. And in a way that's as respectable as possible, folks' religious beliefs, but at the same time, again, we're dealing here with a public health imperative, and the virus doesn't care what religion you belong to, it doesn't care what state you're in, it doesn't care what your political beliefs are, it is a, a thoughtless and mindless threat to all of us. In fact, in some ways, not even a living threat, and one that we have to protect against. And so... I think that whatever measures should reasonably be taken to deal with that threat, it shouldn't matter whether or not you're dealing with it in a in a religious context or not. Uh, but let me add another important point to this, which is we also have to be careful about not going too far and not, in this context or in the context of other civil liberties, being very careful that we're not doing things that go so far that they threaten our liberties now or in the longer term. And, you know, I, I want to mention the American Bar Association and others are looking carefully at anything that's being proposed that seems to be a threat to our freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, uh, extent to which there's due process for people that are being held in prisons, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, even as I say that the authorities have to be as vigilant and as strong in responding to the threat it's posed in this context, whatever, whether it's a religious gathering or not, we also have to be really careful about how far we go And, you know, for how long these uh, enforcement measures are going to remain in place.
1: Rich, I'm glad that you also brought in the dangers of long-term overreach, because that was exactly where I wanted to go next in the minute we have left, is just to look at the potential. You know, whenever there's a war on something, on terrorism, on drugs, you know, we know that our civil rights are really at risk. And uh, I'm wondering, are there some concerns that you have about longer-term uh, potential for change that could undermine our religious freedom?
0: Uh, yes. First of all, I mentioned the risk of stigmatization in the first place. Uh, to the extent some religious community becomes seen as somehow responsible for the spread of the disease, uh, that's really dangerous. I mean, we know historically the extent to which Jews, and now we're seeing people of Chinese origin others are singled out as somehow responsible for the spread of this disease, there really is a danger that they could be discriminated against even uh, subject to violence. So that's, you know, in the first instance, that's a huge problem and one that's present right now that we have to be responding to. But beyond that, uh, now these the issue of accommodation of religion is already one that's very fraught in our society. And think is a danger that as we hopefully move out of this crisis that we don't see folks using this as a justification to say see because in this context there was a problem with providing a religious exemption we ought to be you know skeptical about allowing that to take place in other contexts where you don't have the kind of compelling and unusual state interest that's involved in stopping the disease so i'm very concerned that whatever steps we take now it be very clear uh, that it's because of the very special circumstance that we're now involved with and is not supposed to be a marker for uh, further limitations on religious uh, religious practice and on the need to accommodate those religious practices. Fair enough.
1: Thank you so much. As we close, our guest today, Richard Fulton, we've been talking about religious freedom implications of the response to the coronavirus. Richard, thanks for being with us on Freedom's Right. Thanks. My, my pleasure. As we close, friends, remember, even the coronavirus won't slow down our efforts to protect your religious freedom. Remember, at Freedoms Ring, we don't just talk about religious freedom. We provide legal services for those suffering religious discrimination. So check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org. And don't forget, freedom is not free. Be informed. Get involved. Join the North American Religious Liberty Association, uh, producer of Freedoms Ring, at religiousliberty.info. And be sure to listen to Freedoms Ring on our SoundCloud radio station or on iTunes. This has been Freedoms Ring. I'm your host, Alan Brynock. Until next week, keep freedom
0: ringing.